Hello everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is the fifth episode in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. In the previous episode we began to look at nominalism and this episode is very much a continuation of that episode because nominalism didn't emerge in isolation. It came with a number of other ideas. So in this podcast I want to especially focus on how a shift in the understanding of God's freedom contributed to the exile of the Queen of the Sciences, as well as to the murder of God. As with most ideas that arise in the history of theology and philosophy, beneath all the rationales and reasons offered by various theologians and philosophers is a motive. It should be noted, of course, that motivation is not such an easy thing to figure out in others or in ourselves, because it is often not a singular thing. Often an articulated motive is supported by a different, unarticulated, unconscious motive. A classic example of this is found through Eric Fromm's assessment of that tyrant Adolf Hitler's psychology. You can read about this in Fromm's book The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. Hitler often indicated that his motivation was to build up and restore Germany, but Fromm offers a highly plausible argument that Hitler's real desire, albeit unconscious, was to destroy Germany. Hitler even referred to his achievement of power in Germany as conquering Germany. His aim was to win notoriety and immortality, not to secure the well-being of the German people. This much is actually obvious in hindsight. Hitler's methods were often so against his stated aim that it is actually impossible to believe that his aims were entirely pure and positive. There's an old psychoanalytic dictum that says if you aren't sure about a person's motivation, you can look at the consequence and infer the motivation. And of course, this is this is not always a totally trustworthy thing to do, but I point it out because it applies to all of us, and it may even apply to the case that we're investigating. In a supposed aim to preserve a thing, we may end up sabotaging that very thing. In an attempt to preserve faith, for instance, you might end up setting up its destruction, as is often the case with the most rabid fundamentalists who often make for the most convicted atheists. Well, this kind of destruction is pretty much what happened in a kind of large-scale historical way at the hand of the nominalists, who certainly articulated an aim to preserve a particular understanding of God, but who also precisely, in trying to achieve that aim, ended up setting the very conditions for God's murder. Behind the nominalism of William of Ockham, as with the University of Being of John Duns Scotus, seems to be a desire to maintain the idea of God's absolute power. Unfortunately, the definition of power was dubious because in some important ways it set power against love, even if only by overemphasis. The ancient wisdom of the early Christians was always to note above all other ways of understanding God, that he is love. Love is that ultimate reality that brings into being and affirms the goodness of being. Love is what creates, and love is what redeems. In the most ancient theological articulations, creation and redemption are the very same thing, because they are acts of God, and acts of God's love. Creating and redeeming are not just things God does, but who he is. God is pure actuality, and as such, his very actions are himself. Of course, 
There is a kind of power evident in the endless creating and redeeming of God. It is, to quote Huey Lewis and Jennifer Rush, those highly underestimated theologians, it is the power of love. In other words, whatever God's power means, the earliest Christians held that it must be precisely the same thing as his love. But Occam's emphasis is God's power to create, not the fact that he creates because he is love. And even if this is a mere issue of emphasis rather than about splitting power and love, the result of this emphasis is a kind of distortion of the entire theological field of vision. I think it's a strange theological move because love would suggest a better answer to the question of what God's motive might have been. Why did God create? Because he is love and it is in the nature of love to create. That sounds like a good answer to me, but placing God's power at the top of the reasons for anything does something else. It answers the question, why did God create, with because he can. But then why does he not, like a divine equivalent of an atomic bomb, also become a destroyer of worlds? Simply being able to do something is not equal to having a good reason for doing it, and nor is it equal to being good in doing it. And it's amazing what this emphasis on power over love does in the history of theology. Occam also genuinely thought that universals, those ideas of beauty, goodness, truth, and unity that give coherence to being, um, which we covered in the previous episode, he thought that universals limit the power and freedom of God. That would certainly be one of the main reasons why he wanted to get rid of them. At the obvious risk of oversimplification, the idea behind this assumption, um, Occam's assumption obviously, was this. If universals are set up first as ideas to guide God's creative power and freedom, then it would seem that God is somehow himself backed into an ontological corner by using universals. Like the architect who sets up the plans for a building, is God not in the end somewhat at the mercy of his plans? Well, in a sense you might say that he is subordinate to his own ideas, the way that I would be subordinate to the limitations of the medium of language in trying to communicate my thoughts to you, but the one who believes in the reality of universals would say, this isn't a problem, because the transcendentals emit from God himself and so are perfectly consistent with his nature. This is to say that according to the universal's view, God is only limited by his nature. Against this, the nominalist move is to say that God should be limited by nothing, not even his nature. It's worth thinking of this idea of being limited by one's nature a little more because of what it can teach us about freedom. Ancient conceptions of goodness and freedom held that being as such is good, and freedom is that which allows being to flourish, which means freedom is what allows goodness to propagate itself. If being as such is good, it follows that it is good to be and good to choose in keeping with one's being. It is good to be human, for instance, and it is good to choose in keeping with the limitations implied by the fact of being human. In fact, choosing against those limitations and capacities can often lead to the undoing of being. If I act, for instance, on the belief that I can fly by jumping from a tall building, I will not be affirming the goodness of my being. Instead, I will merely confirm the unbearable flatness of my squashness at the end of the fall. 
Life involves this balancing act for most of us. We have to figure out how to live and act in keeping with who we really are, because failing to do this is tantamount to rebelling against our own being. Well, there is an analogy here. God, being good, would act only in accordance with who he is. Before I get to some of the implications of this for how to understand freedom, it will help to dwell just very briefly on the implications of this for us. Each human being has specific capacities, meaning that it would be evil to expect of people what their capacity does not allow for, just as it would be evil not to allow people to flourish according to their gifts and strengths. Restrictions and limits apply in both positive and negative ways that have to be discerned. I had to discern, for instance, that I was never going to be a professional sportsman, and also I had to discern that my natural gifts made me more suited to the human sciences than to the natural sciences, even though I've always also been very interested in the natural sciences. This is part of the reason why I tend to find personality typologies interesting, not because they become rules that we have to stick to, or even because they are always as precise as they need to be or as we may want them to be, but because they can reveal something about who we are, how we operate, and, and how we can grow. We learn in other ways too, of course, how to flourish in the world, and this flourishing seems to me to always accord with who we actually are and how we are made, rather than with some vague, abstract, critical, constructivist nominalism. Freedom comes from acting in accordance with our being. It is only in modernity, in the wake of the nominalist revolution, that the world starts to think of freedom, the ability to act, as being divorced from goodness, which in the mind of the ancients was inherent in being, so it didn't make sense to, to set up this divorce. In fact, in the modern era, in the wake of nominalism, freedom becomes the ability to choose whatever you want. Choose, if you want, to overindulge even if it's bad for you. Well, that, that would be the modern conception of freedom, so go for it. And this modern conception of freedom applies to things like choosing between two sodas that are equally toxic for your body, um, or choosing in favor or against things like abortion or euthanasia. Detached from the goodness of being ethics becomes a really tricky thing to legitimate. And so after nominalism, freedom as a notion starts to include the freedom to go against goodness and even against reason. Now, choosing itself becomes the point, as, as in the work of Nietzsche. Chesterton, as usual, is profound in his critique of this view of the will, so I'm going to quote him at length. This is a very long passage, but it's one of my favorites from his book, Orthodoxy. Now, one school of thinkers has seen this view of the will and jumped at it as a way of renewing the pagan health of the world. They see that reason destroys, but will, they say, creates. The ultimate authority, they say, is in will, not in reason. The supreme point is not why a man demands a thing, but the fact that he demands it. I have no space to trace or expound this philosophy of will. It came, I suppose, through Nietzsche, who preached something that is called egoism. That, indeed, was simple-minded enough, for Nietzsche denied egoism simply by preaching it. To preach anything is to give it away. First, the egoist calls life a war without mercy, and then he takes the greatest possible trouble to drill his enemies in war. To preach egoism is to practice altruism. 
but however it began, the view is common enough in current literature. The main defense of these thinkers is that they are not thinkers, they are makers. They say that choice is itself the divine thing. Thus, Mr. Bernard Shaw has attacked the old idea that men's acts are to be judged by the standard of the desire of happiness. He says that a man does not act for his happiness, but from his will. He does not say, jam will make me happy, but I want jam. And in all this, others follow him with yet greater enthusiasm. The real difference between the test of happiness and the test of will is simply that the test of happiness is a test and the other isn't. You can discuss whether a man's act in jumping over a cliff was directed towards happiness. You cannot discuss whether it was derived from will. Of course it was. You can praise an action by saying that it is calculated to bring pleasure or pain or to discover truth or to save the soul, but you cannot praise an action because it shows will. For to say that is merely to say that it is an action. By this praise of will, you cannot really choose one course as better than another. And yet choosing one course as better than another is the very definition of the will you are praising. The worship of will is the negation of will. To admire mere choice is to refuse to choose. If Mr. Bernard Shaw comes up to me and says, will something, that is tantamount to saying, I do not mind what you will, and that is tantamount to saying, I have no will in the matter. You cannot admire will in general, because the essence of will is that it is particular. I really love that passage. It is so insightful. For the nominalist and voluntarist, God becomes mere unpredictable power, a power to choose whatever without necessarily being consistent with himself. He can make crooked things straight and call a spade a washing machine. If the idea of torturing someone in hell for an eternity that far outweighs the actual misdeeds of the person in question sounds deplorable, don't worry, the nominalist God can simply declare that it is good. Or do worry, because this places moral relativism not in our shoddy conceptions of the good or in our inability to access the best possible view of things. Instead, it places moral relativism in God himself, in his will. In the wake of this terrifying theological adjustment, God can choose to alter the moral structure of the universe, and in a way of himself too. It's no wonder that Martin Luther found this God terrifying, and why John Calvin had some doubts about whether it was possible to distinguish between God and the devil. While their theologies differ in important ways, both Luther and Calvin were not in the strictest sense nominalist in both of their theologies, there is still a remnant of Christian Platonism, although it is, I would say, a contaminated form of that theological vision. But what nominalism did to them, and it is still doing to most of us, was create a whole lot of instability in theology, because it left the decisive impression that God could not be considered consistent. The elevation of God's power by the nominalist is, at least a residue of it, is certainly found in Luther and Calvin's theologies, and to elevate God's power to that extent can, in fact, leave very little room for God himself. God could become a little bit like a divine Bruce Banner who would occasionally be at the mercy of the Hulk within. A slightly less obvious consequence of this strange combination of arbitrariness and power is that it leads directly to nihilism. This is something of an implication hinted at by Chesterton in that passage I read you. 
If there is no stable order to the meaning of things, if things are disconnected from universals, and if the world is a mere manifestation of God's brute power, then what precisely is the meaning of being? Well, we can't really say. We ourselves are, in the nominalist view, mere brute wills, willing stuff to happen, or maybe meaning is something we should will too. Certainly this was part of Nietzsche's solution to nihilism. If meaning is not there to be discovered, it should at the very least be made. I should mention that the univocal nominalist voluntarist turn also led to the idea, which I have somewhat implied above, that knowledge is representational. What this means is that we do not know reality, but rather we only know our thoughts about reality. This sounds like fertile ground for structural and post-structural theory, and, indeed, it is. There are now entire schools of thought in universities that teach us that everything is a construct, meaning that we are left somewhat stranded in a world of floating signifiers, drowning in mediation with no access to the fresh air of reality. Quite frankly, it's really depressing <laughs> to look at the world that way, and even though this later discourse wasn't invented by the early nominalist, it is the inevitable consequence of that brand of thinking. So what does this all mean for our criminal investigation? Well, first, I need to say that it does not mean that there is an absolute break between the prior understandings of God and the later theological constructions. In a way, that is a major problem. What we end up with in history is a perpetual confusion about who God is. As soon as you have multiple voices vying for um, different understandings, you end up with a kind of fractured picture. If the link to God has been severed or even just damaged by the nominalist revolution, it starts to become perfectly plausible that we cannot know God, that God is just a representation or maybe even just a projection of our own invention, as Feuerbach argues. In other words, it becomes easier and easier to believe that God is really dead, rather than just that it is our belief in God that has been dismantled. But as I've been digging through my various case files and notes, it's become more and more evident to me that a prior way of seeing, which was genuinely open to mystical experience and a definite attunement to the mystery and goodness that shines through the goodness of being, this prior way of seeing is actually seeing, whereas the later theological turns were a kind of willful blindness. To believe, as the patristics did, as the desert fathers and mothers did, that our being is anchored in the being of God, and that God is good, and that being itself is good, is to arrive at the astonishing idea that our true freedom is in acting in accordance with the goodness of being. To be free is not to get to choose whatever we want. Often, as the New Testament writers saw it, to merely choose whatever we want is to end up being a slave to sin and death. In other words, a slave to non-being and annihilation. Freedom means recognizing a resonance between us and God, and us and the world that allows for true flourishing. We still get to choose. This is not, after all, a totalitarian theological regime in which we become puppets to the divine. We get to choose from a range of different goods. The real choice isn't between good things and bad things, as if we were all stuck in a Manichean universe, but between different experiences of the delight of the divine in the midst of things. Yes, there are still terrible things in the world that we are confronted with, but we recognize those terrible things precisely 
Because in the deepest parts of ourselves, we know that goodness should get to have the first and the last word. With all of that said, before I leave you, I wanted to offer a brief account of where we've come from and some insight into what I think it means for now. After a very brief summary of the case so far, I, I want to give you a sense of why this matters. Uh, we started, of course, with a simple metaphorical premise, which has two dominant dimensions. The first is that theology, the so-called queen of the sciences, seems to be ruling from a distance. If theology was largely unified at one point in history, give or take a, a few odd squabbles and accusations of heresy, today we are likely to experience it as a barrage of contradictions and fragments. People being people, uh, and thus quite consistent in nature, have always found ways to disagree with each other. But today, in a world of political upheaval and media frenzy, we seem to have found ways to disagree even about some of the most fundamental theological categories. This means, among other things, that our ability to navigate the meaning of the world and life through any theological vision becomes an almost absurd activity just because it is so impossibly difficult. The second dimension to this case is Nietzsche's idea of the death of God. Nietzsche's point was that belief in God has become untenable. And if you want the ultimate confirmation of this, you would need to turn to something like Altizer's or Zizek's or Peter Rollins's Death of God theology, which suggests that even if God is dead, you can keep your theology. It just happens to be a theology without God. My point is that God's murder becomes believable only if you happen to have a particular understanding of God, an understanding that happens to have been invented in the late medieval period and then perpetuated by later theological developments. I think, in a way, we've solved quite a bit of the crime. The queen is in exile because some of her subjects created specific ways of thinking and conceiving of God and theology in general that ensured that she would need to retreat and rule from a distance, with her influence seriously diminished. And we also have a clearer sense of the second dimension of the case, which, as I've just suggested, relates to the nature of the God who was murdered. It is becoming increasingly obvious that the God who died was not the transcendent, intimately loving God spoken about by Jesus or the early Christians, but was a counterfeit God. The kind of God who is unbelievable and thus murderable is a God who is a being and not being itself, or a thought and not an actual reality. And it is also a God who is not that committed to the transcendent order of things. We also by now have a good idea regarding the main theological missteps that contributed to this crime that we're investigating. First is dwelling in becoming at the expense of any hope of any kind of permanent grounding for being. Second is adopting the university of being over analogy. And third is leaning more on nominalism than on universalism when a middle point between both is actually preferable. And fourth, it was in an attempt to preserve God's freedom and, and even our freedom that goodness itself has become obscured. It's become untethered from being itself. From what I can tell, what made the theological consequences of these missteps so difficult to predict is that their pitfalls were not and are still not immediately obvious. If their flaws aren't obvious, then it's no wonder that they have been acceptable to so many for so long. The risk of my sharing my notes from this philosophical detective work with you is that at times it may seem like they're too fragmentary, or that I've rushed to conclusions, or even that I would be overly 
harsh towards perspectives that contradict what I'm putting forward regarding the possibility that I've rushed to conclusions, especially, for instance, I can only say I haven't. (laughs) Maybe I haven't been able to convey all the details. It's likely that I haven't, but it has taken me a few years of, metaphorically speaking, wrestling with various angels and demons to understand some of the importance of, of the things that I'm sharing with you in this series. It's been a long, painstaking process of trying to grasp the meaning of this theological crime scene, and I know that there is still detail that I need to be able to fill in. I hope, though, that my imperfect words do make some sense to you. Then, regarding the possibility that I might convey a somewhat harsh stance towards theologies that dwell in contingency, I realize that this is the risk of the series. I can only say, though, that my aim is not to come up with an overly rigid theological framework, but precisely the opposite. One of the major consequences of the theological shifts that I've been discussing is precisely that theology became more predisposed to rigidity and tyranny, when in fact it was something that opened the way to a genuinely mystical consciousness capable of holding the various perspectives that we might all have. The theology I'm aiming for should actually allow our various contingencies, personalities, and ways of seeing it should allow for more creativity. The ironic result of making the contingent absolute, as I discussed a bit in the second episode, is that theological perspectives become far more rigid and even more brittle. If we have heated battles, for instance, over predestination and free will, as in the debate between Erasmus and Luther, This is precisely because of a failure to see the big picture within which both predestination and free will can be accommodated. I have found that the surprising result of seeking the absolute beyond the contingent is actually the advent of genuine liberty, imagination and wonder. An insight may help to clarify why I am taking you on this journey. It is this. When we arrange our mental furniture, or even have it rearranged for us, it becomes easier to accept certain things and reject certain other things. If reason and faith cannot be regarded as identical, it is absolutely clear to me that certain modes of reasoning make resting in the transcendent God more difficult, while others don't. Think of this as a kind of mental Tetris. When you arrange the Tetris blocks badly in the game, the game ends far more abruptly than it would have if you had arranged the blocks well from the start. Or to use another analogy, imagine you're packing for a vacation, and you have to try to fit a whole bunch of stuff into a very small bag. There are different ways of packing that can all work, of course, but certain ways of packing will make it all too likely that certain items will not fit very well, as I have discovered on many trips during which I've managed to to buy too many books while I'm traveling, and then not have any idea of how to get them back into a bag. Well, having worked on this particular case for a while now, it's become clear to me that in the history of theology, certain ways of packing the conceptual luggage work better than others, and certain other ways of packing end up being absolutely detrimental to faith. Part of what I hope I'm offering here is something along the lines of the best way I know at this point in my life, given my own finite mind, of getting this theological Tetris to work out or of packing our theological luggage to give us the most room and freedom to play with. I can only hope that you will see it that way because it is certainly the way I see it. That said, the case is not closed. 
Uh, all that's been said doesn't fully account for the crime we're investigating. So as I leave you with these thoughts to ponder, may you know in the depth of your being the goodness that grounds and sustains the real, the transcendent love that grants you the gift of your own life and the promise of flourishing, even in the midst of the various traumas and difficulties of this contingent existence. Cheers. Thank you.